Can we trust the Bible? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? How did everything begin? Uh, what's the point of suffering? The kinds of questions that culture might have of Christianity that if you've ever been asked, you might feel like you're on your heels to answer. Uh, we want to resource you with the kinds of reason for the faith that we have. And so I would invite you, if you are looking forward to 2020, this is one of the things I'm looking forward to, uh, this series in apologetics. But that leaves me with a dilemma because we finished one series, we got a new series coming, and I've got this one isolated week at the end of 2020 or 2019. What am I, I going to do with it? Uh, I decided... Uh, that I'm going to stick with the song bandwagon and, and, and not do Mary's song, but the next song that's in the book of Luke, which is Zechariah's song. In order to understand, I think, Zechariah's song, or really any song, it's good for us to pay attention to the lyrics. I know a lot of you don't pay attention to lyrics. I'm guessing that because if you did pay attention to the lyrics, the kind of stuff that you hear on the radio... Uh, you might choose to pass uh, because the messages that are being displayed in those songs might not actually be congruent with your Christian faith. And so maybe you just listen to the beat. But I encourage you, listen to the lyrics. If you want to know the song, you got to know its lyrics. And also, if you want to know the song, it can be beneficial to know the story behind the song. If you want to know the meaning of the song, feel the weight of the song, be moved by the song. Sometimes you need to know more than just the lyrics. You need to know the story behind the song. And so I want to try to illustrate that. I'm going to show uh, a couple lyrics here. Uh, this song is titled uh, Save the Last Dance for Me um, by the Drifters, or if you hip, Michael Buble. The song goes like this. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, <laughs> we sang Christmas carols at my grandparents' house uh, this past Sunday. Uh, and I did some karaoke, uh, and it was so bad. I think my dad threw up. It was <laughs> awful. So I'll just read it. You can dance. Every dance with the guy who gives you the eye, let him hold you tight. You can smile. Every smile for the man who held your hand beneath the pale moonlight. But don't forget who's taking you home and in whose arms you're going to be. So darling, save the last dance for me. How many people know that song? I've heard that song before. Good. First service, a lot more people knew that song. It's an older song. Now, what you might not know about this song is that the Drifters didn't write it. Michael Buble didn't write it. It was actually written by a guy by the name of Doc Pomus. Doc Pomus. And Doc wrote this song after his wedding day. He wrote it because during his wedding reception, his new bride danced with every other man in the room except for him. And he wrote this song, especially the little chorus, but don't forget who's taking you home and in whose arms you're going to be. Darling, save the last dance for me. Now, the reason that he didn't dance with his wife on his wedding day is because he had polio and was in a wheelchair. And so the, the, the meaning of this song might change a little bit if you understood the story behind the song. A lot of our Christian hymns are like that. This uh, classic hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. We don't sing a whole lot of hymns at Keystone, but I know a lot of you are familiar from other churches that you may have visited. Um, but these hymns have rich lyrics in them. So what a friend we have in Jesus by Joseph Scriven. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Here's the problem I have with some Christian 
songs and lyrics. I feel like they're just too saccharine, too sugary sweet, just full of pat answers. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And I just think, oh, okay. And I hear the songs on JTL, and I just think, oh, this is just syrupy sweet, like, until maybe I understand, okay, Jeremy, uh, Joseph Scriven knew more about suffering. And for him, those words meant a lot. When he was 24 years old, living in Ireland, uh, he was engaged to be married. And he came home one day and found that his wife had fallen, or his fiance had fallen off her horse, hit her head, fell into a creek, and drowned. Heartbroken. He ends up moving from Ireland to Canada, and eventually, 11 years later, finds love again. Proposes, has a new fiance. And two weeks before his wedding, his fiance, wife to be, falls ill and dies. And he wrote this song a year later as his mom was dying in Ireland. He wrote this hymn, this poem, uh, to comfort his mom. This is a man who knew suffering, and so when he sings this song, what a friend we have in Jesus. To me, it means a little bit more once we know the story behind it. I'll do one more. It's more of a classic one. You might even know the story behind. It is Well With My Soul by Horatio Spafford. The lyrics, though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford, successful businessman in the late 1800s, ended up seeing his fortune and career uh, literally burned to the ground in the Great Chicago Fire. Around the same time, his son died of scarlet fever. And to kind of bring some solace and relief to his family, he decides to go on vacation and he sends his wife and four daughters to uh, England vacation for a season. He needed to remain in Chicago, and so his wife and daughters go off, and on the way, the ship sinks. And he gets a telegram from his wife with just six words, saved alone, what shall I do? And so he got on a boat, and he journeyed over to England to reunite with his wife, and on the way, he wrote this song. In the midst of sorrows, he's saying it's well with his soul. It it just feels more weighty once we know the story behind it. I think the same is going to be true for Zechariah's song. For us to really know Zechariah's song, I think we need to know Zechariah's story. And so I'm going to pray for us that God would give us the eyes to be able to see uh, the story behind the song. So would you join me in praying? Father, we're so grateful that we have the scriptures that we are not left to just speculate about who you are and what you've done, but you have revealed yourself to us. In creation, we see your power, your beauty, your might, but it's in the scriptures that we see this divine revelation played out over millennia. My Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see Christ this morning that you would help us see him in his majesty, full of his glory, that we would notice and love, taste and see his beauty, that you'd let us see with unveiled face 
his glory and be transformed by it, that your spirit would move in our hearts to be remaking us, transforming us more and more and more into his image, that we might serve and love you without fear in holiness, in righteousness, in obedience. Lord, only you can do that, and so we ask for your spirit to do that work this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can open up your Bible to Luke chapter 1. If we want to know the song, we've got to know the lyrics. And so I'm going to read the lyrics first, and then we'll get into the story behind the song. It begins in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. I'll read along, and you can follow up on the screen as well. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet, into the way of peace. Now, uh, to understand, I think, Zechariah's song, you've heard the lyrics, but depending upon your knowledge of who Zechariah is and your familiarity with the Old Testament, I'm not sure if this song feels the weight that it ought to or stirs in the soul in the way that I think it ought to. So to tell the meaning of the song, I want to know a little bit more about Zechariah, which is good that Luke includes some details about Zechariah. He begins in Chapter 1, verses 5. The entire book actually begins with this introduction to Zechariah. So let's take a look. In the days of Herod, of king, uh, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. That's our character. That's his song of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly, in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now this is a little tidbit of information about Zechariah that might inform the way that we hear his song. So what can we learn about this? Well, he's a priest, he's married, he's old, he's righteous, but he has no kid. And so you might be able to feel a little bit of what Zechariah is feeling. He feels that he's obedient to God, walking in righteousness, blameless before him. And yet he has this black mark on him in verse 7. He has no child. You might feel that way. You might feel like, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm obeying God as I ought to, and yet I don't have the thing I deserve, or at least the thing I want. I'm obeying God and not getting what I want. You can feel the disappointment, maybe the frustration, the angst that Zechariah is feeling. 
And maybe like Zechariah, your feelings are even multiplied because of this cultural connection between blessing and righteousness. We find out later that Elizabeth is experiencing shame, reproach, because she doesn't have a child. They would have looked at Zechariah and said, what's wrong with Zechariah? I mean, he's a priest, but God isn't blessing him with a son. And so Zechariah is feeling the shame from others as they question, is Zechariah good? I felt a little bit of that shame before. 38 years old, unmarried. I've had people ask, what's wrong with Brandon? Single, 38, string of broken relationships. What's wrong with Brandon? The answer to that question is plenty. There is plenty wrong with me. The problem with the question is that it connects blessing and righteousness. It's as if if I was good, then good things would happen to me. And it harbors this belief, this pride that would say, if I'm blessed, I'm good. And so I'm, I'm hoping Zechariah was able to find his security, his identity, not in his circumstances, but before his God. But I'm guessing the, the fact that he didn't have a child was still a painful reminder that he didn't have everything that he wanted. Fortunately, the song or the story for Zechariah continues. Verse 13, he's serving in the temple and an angel, in fact, the angel uh, Gabriel appears to him in, in verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now this is good news. Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to have a son, even though they're old in age. And you might think that that kind of news would give Zechariah reason to sing. But whether it's callousness over years of disappointment or just not sure if Gabriel is playing some horrific joke on him. He doesn't sing. He asks a question, how will I know? I hear what you're saying, Gabriel, but how will I know? Gabriel essentially says, I'll show you how you'll know. You'll know because from now until that baby is born, you won't be able to speak. And there's reason to suspect not able to hear as well. And so for the next nine months, Zechariah plays the longest game of charades, tries to communicate to Elizabeth what this angel said. Now, I'm guessing once she found out she was pregnant that that connected. But it wasn't until it came time to name this child that something happened. As custom, it would have been to name this baby after the dad, Zechariah. But rather than name the child Junior, Zechariah says, his name is John. And as soon as he writes that down, his mouth is opened and he 
sings the song. He sings Zechariah's song. I don't know that those details really explain Zechariah's song. I mean, the Eve, Zechariah, reasoned to sing that he was going to have a son. He gave him reason to say shame was going to be lifted. Zechariah had reason to sing because he could speak again. But the song isn't about his son, John. He mentions him, but he's not the star. It's not about the shame, and it's not about being able to speak again. And so to understand Zechariah's song, I think we need to do a deeper dive, a deeper VH1 behind the music kind of dive where we dig deep into understanding the deeper story, the deep cuts of Zechariah's song. And so we need to think, all right, Zechariah would have been a priest. As a priest, he would have had great familiarity with the Old Testament. I wish that we wouldn't call it the Old Testament when, when I have old things and new things, I, I get a new thing, I throw an old thing out. And so I think, I wish we wouldn't call it the Old Testament because we need the Old Testament. It's the foundation for the New Testament. And Zechariah might have, um, might have, I'm guessing he would have known the Old Testament scriptures, it, the history of Israel, far better than we do as 21st century Christians. I'm guessing he knew it at least better than I do. I'll say that. And so to, I think, understand Zechariah's song, we need to get into what was he thinking about those nine months leading up to the birth of his baby. What I want to do, and it's a little ambitious, I'm not sure I succeeded first service. My goal over the next 15 minutes is to do a flyover of the entire Old Testament highlighting a handful of texts that I think would have been swirling around in Zechariah's mind those nine months as he awaited the birth of his son. Okay, and I'm giving you that warning now. Uh, so if you need to pinch yourself or your neighbor looks like they're going to nod off, just pinch them. You have my permission to. If you have the notes, I, I tried to help us out here by providing uh, some pictures that go along with it. There'll be six pictures, each representing a particular promise, a particular failure, or a particular hope as we investigate the history of Israel. Are you okay with that? All right. We got to begin in the beginning. Exodus chapter 1, 2, and 3. God creates mankind, Adam and Eve, and he's got this perfect relationship with his people. They are his people in his place, experiencing all of the enjoyment of his rule and blessing. God's people, God's place, enjoying his rule and blessing. It's perfect. It's, it's the Garden of Eden. But that situation is fractured once Adam and Eve choose to reject God's rule and rebel against his wisdom choosing to determine for themselves what is right and wrong in their own eyes. And that decision to rebel from God creates a fracture that ends up going throughout time. Where they once would have been naked and unashamed, walking in the presence of God, experiencing and enjoying all that there was in the garden, this decision to turn their back on God fractured everything. And as a result of their sin, they are now ashamed. They realize they're naked and they hide. They're embarrassed. 
and the punishment is to be cast out of the garden. And so we see God's good plan fail. The man falls from God and on their way out of the garden, God makes a promise that Adam and Eve would have overheard. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, 15 being that key verse. A little tree will, might help you to remember, here's what's happening in the garden. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On the belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here's the key verse. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God makes a promise. As part of his curse, as Adam and Eve are leaving the garden, he makes a promise. There is going to come a day when this offspring of the woman will be born and he will be a snake-stomping savior. He will restore what has been destroyed by your decision to rebel. And so Adam and Eve go out of the garden with this promise in mind. But as they exit east of Eden, humanity quickly falls into disrepair. Their hope of a savior who would restore their relationship with God, Eve's son, is quickly dashed when they find out that Eve's son doesn't save humanity, but it actually destroys humanity as Cain kills Abel. Their hope, disappointed. Cain would not be the savior for God's people. In fact, violence and destruction increase to the point where God decides, I'm going to destroy the earth. Maybe this will save humanity. If I could find one righteous man, put him on an ark, he and his family, and then maybe start over. Will that restore us back to the garden? And so God floods the earth. Noah and his family are safe. God ends up giving Noah the same kind of commands that he would have given to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And it's like we've got like a clean slate. We've got a, a do-over, a try again. And God actually makes a promise to Noah in this section uh, you can remember it with the rainbow. God says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And so, Noah gets a chance to restart, maybe do over what Adam failed. Maybe Noah can have a better chance at it. We learn that he doesn't. After uh, the boat has landed, uh, things begin to fall apart pretty quickly. It's one of the reasons that I uh, decided not to start a commune. I've thought about it before. I have a name for it. It's called Tootie Town. It's me, my sisters, their husbands, my nieces and nephews. Uh, I'd probably invite a couple of my friends into it. And we, we'd buy maybe a big piece of land, put houses on it, have like a communal space, probably like a communal swimming pool, a place for our kids to play. We might even have like some standard rules that everyone is able to follow just so that like we'll, we'll know at what age will all of us end up allowing our kids to have cell phones. 
We make a rule. That way our kids aren't like, well, Tommy has one. Well, no, Tommy doesn't have one because he's part of this community. We decide what TV shows are going to watch. The story of Noah actually is a reminder to me that um, that wouldn't work out. As much as I tried to keep the evil outside, it's, it's going to sneak back in because the evil that destroys the world is not an evil outside, it's an evil inside. And so long as I'm a part of that community, I'm going to bring the wickedness inside it. Noah was righteous, but he still had the same sin as Adam did. And so things spiraled into repair, into despair. And it's out of that spiral, despair, this Tower of Babel's built, the final act of defiance, pride, rebellion against God, that God ends up calling a man named Abram out of this, not because he's a great guy, not because he's a righteous guy, not because he earned God's favor, but simply because God said, I'm going to choose to love Abraham. And so we hear that promise. The promise essentially is to have a son be a great nation, and so the, the emoji is a little family there. Verse 1 in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. It's promising of land. Two, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here is God's plan to restore humanity back to the garden. God is going to choose a people, and he's going to make a nation, and through this nation, he's going to bless the entire world. Abraham has this covenant um, revisited a handful of times. Uh, again, in Genesis 17, you can, there's one more promise that I want to draw your attention to. Behold, God says, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. We've heard that before. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you in the nations. And here's the line. And kings shall come from you. The problem is right now, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, um, are like Zechariah and Elizabeth. They don't have any kids. And so God needs to first make good on his promise to have a son before he can build a nation. And God does make good on that promise. Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac. God reaffirms his covenant with Isaac. And Isaac has a son, Jacob, also named Israel. Jacob, Israel. He has 12 sons, one of them with a technicolor dream coat. And that son is going to provide safety for his family, for God's people, for God's nation. He's going to provide safety for them in Egypt. But this people too begin to rebel, just like Adam and Eve, just like Noah. God's people end up turning their back from God and find themselves in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, oppressed, working as slaves, in bondage, in chains. And God remembers his promise that he made to Abraham. And so he brings a savior. You know who the savior is, the deliverer. He comes to him in a burning bush and says, I've, re- I've heard the cries of my people, I will save them. And with a mighty hand and at the price of a lamb, 
God redeems his people. He purchases them back. He brings them out of slavery. And he forms, more in some ways, reaffirms his covenant that he made with Abraham, with Moses. He gives them the law. He says, I've rescued you, and now this is how you're going to live. I'm giving you rules so you know what justice is, what generosity is. And Moses ends up giving these decrees in Deuteronomy 7. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command to you today. God has now delivered his people, put them um, into a land, given them the law. It's similar to what God promised in, in the garden, God's people in God's place, enjoying God's rule and blessing. But if you know the story of the Israelite nation, they do not do well at keeping this covenant, keeping the rules, the commandments, the laws. In fact, if you've ever read the book of Judges, you know just how dark humanity can become. That is one book that gets darker and darker and darker after each chapter, showing us that legislation, law, rule cannot change a heart. Judges, the end of Judges is worse than anything you're going to see on TV. It is rated R plus or M, mature audience only, whatever. It is intense. It's to show that you cannot legislate the heart. And so in this mess, God's people rescued. There was hope. There was promise. They fall again. And so God has to keep coming and visiting. He remembers and he raises up a king. King David's probably the most famous. King David would be the greatest king. In some ways, God blessed David in ways that he had not in the past. For a lot of accounts, it may have looked like God was finally fulfilling his promise. They were a nation. They were blessed. They were a blessing to the nation. They weren't fully following God's law, but it, I mean, it was close to the garden. God even made some additional promises to David about how long this kingdom would last. 2 Samuel 7, 10 through 11. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. Here's this place for his people. And I will plant them that they may dwell in their own place, God's people in God's place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly for the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. 
Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The blessing, the golden era of Israel with King David, it would go on forever is the promise to David. He sings about it in Psalm 132 and brings up a key line in here. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I shall dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread so that my people will be my place and join my blessing and rule. Her priests I will clothe again with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And so from that point on, Israel experienced an eternal, it, well, actually it didn't. It, it, that kingdom fell apart pretty quickly. David, Solomon, and then split kingdom. The blessing, the honor, the glory falls apart. Why? Because just like Adam, just like Noah, just like God's people through Abraham, just like God's people through Moses, the sin in our enemies is not out there. It's in here. And David was just as susceptible to sin as any other king. And he fell and his son fell and the entire kingdom falls apart again. The kingdom doesn't last. And it falls into repair. And over the next hundreds of years, each nation kind of takes turn conquering and then ruling over God's people. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, eventually Greece and Rome. And in these dark days where God's people are scattered, where they're living in exile, God continues to remember his promise that he made to Abraham. And I have three prophets I want to draw your attention to. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah comes to this people who are in exile and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It was the law. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God's people experiencing the blessing of God's rule. And no longer shall they teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of him to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is a promise that talks about not the enemies of Egypt or Canaan, but our enemy of sin. We get a promise in Jeremiah. Isaiah says something similar to those who are currently living in dark. Well, I'll just read it. But there will be no gloom 
for her who was in anguish. The people who walked in darkness, outside of God's blessing, east of Eden, cast out of God's kingdom. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus comes, makes the promise there will be a son born, a child born, who will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. One more. Malachi. It's the last verse of your Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. There's one more promise. There is someone coming. But after this prophecy, silence. Four hundred years of silence. After thousands of years of promises and failures, promises and disappointments, hope being dashed, Noah, Moses, Abraham, David, all of them falling. Prophets are making promises, but then 400 years of silence. Until an angel comes to a man named Zechariah and says, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And this son shall come in the power of Elijah. And he will call the children of Israel back to their Lord. And Elijah's thinking, I know where that's from. And Elijah goes home. And in a couple of months, he gets a visit from a relative of his, Mary. And he finds out that Mary's not married, but she's pregnant. And through some mimery, finds out that it's not Joseph's baby. And he remembers, is this the virgin? In fact, when he's near his wife Elizabeth and he feels her belly, anytime Mary comes near, he can feel the baby inside Elizabeth jump when Mary comes by and he wonders, is, is this the Messiah? Is this the coming? Is this the time that God is going to fulfill all of those promises. Is he delivering the snake-stomping Savior? Is he going to save the world, not through a flood, but through a baby? Is he going to finally create a people and a place to enjoy his rule and blessing? I believe he does, because this is the song he sings. Zechariah sings this song. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets and from old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. Zechariah is singing this song because he saw God rescuing us from our deepest enemies. He saw that Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, all of the great men of the Old Testament were not sufficient to actually defeat the real enemy of our souls. Zechariah saw that God was rescuing us from our deepest enemy. Our enemy wasn't Egypt or Canaan or Babylon or Persia. It's not even Rome today. Zechariah saw God rescuing us from our deepest enemy. Not the wicked outside, but the wicked inside. Salvation is about the forgiveness and victory over sin. So Zechariah sang, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited, he's redeemed, and raised up a horn of salvation, just like he said he was going to. And he continues, why did God do this? He did this. You have to go to the next slide. He did this. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah saw God was remembering his promise and releasing us to serve him without fear. Why does God save us? I don't know if you've thought about this, but why does God choose to save us? You may, well, deliver us to heaven, Brandon, of course. Not first of all, not finally. His reason to save you is to showcase his mercy and faithfulness. He made promises over hundreds of years and he saves us to make good on those promises. Salvation is for the glory of the Lord that we would praise him for his mercy and his faithfulness. And then he also saves us to release us from sin so that we might serve him without fear. Adam and Eve in the garden, once they sinned, feared God, hid from God. Maybe you understand what it means to fear God. And you might obey, but you obey because you're not sure if God really loves you or not. And you just don't want to get smacked. Parents, you understand that kind of obedience. You know when your kids are only obeying you, not because they love you, or maybe respect you, it's because they fear you. They don't want the time out, they don't want the spanking, and so they do what you tell them to do, but they don't do it happily, they do it begrudgingly. I'll tell you, God is not pleased with our begrudging submission. There's a kind of obedience that actually dishonors the one we serve if we serve him, I think, in fear, serve him out of duty, this salvation is freeing us from sin and transforming our hearts in ways so that instead of serving God out of fear and duty, we serve him out of love and delight. And Zechariah thought, this is the best news ever. 
I am free from sin that I might serve and love. I might be God's people in God's place and join God's rule and blessing. Zechariah sang because he saw God remembering and releasing. Last one. Zechariah continues, finally addressing his son. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah sang because he saw that God was radiating a light into the darkness. I'm guessing whether it's you or someone you know, you can feel what it's like to be able to sit in darkness. Darkness of your sin or darkness in your sorrow, but you know what it's like to sit in darkness, to feel that you're in the shadow of death. And Zechariah is singing because he says, God is sending the sun and there is a dawning coming where the light will descend and bring light to the world. I was at a Christmas Eve service at Westminster Presbyterian Church on Christmas Eve. It was your classic old-fashioned Christmas service. And at the end of the service, the lights went out and the organ began to play Silent Night. And it's a powerful picture to be able to sit in darkness and see candles start far off in the corner of the room and slowly get passed from person to person. And as the light gets passed, one to another, the, the dark corners of this room began to light up and by the time we had finished singing the song, the whole auditorium, which was once dark, was now bright with light. I could see clearly. And it's such a powerful thing to be able to have that image and sing this song, Silent Night, Silent Night, Holy Night. Son of God loves pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. The scriptures give us ample reason to sing. And Christmas in particular, we might be reminded, we might be full of the kinds of lyrics that would cause our souls to be stirred and sing. As you look into 2020, my encouragement would be to find the kinds of tunes and lyrics that would make your soul sing like Zechariah. Fill your soul with the kinds of truth, regardless of your circumstances, that would cause you to sing. A couple of resources I might recommend. Um, your Bible has lots of songs with lyrics already in it that you can refer to. Uh, Tim Keller basically just lifted those and put it into a book. Um, the, the book is called Songs of Jesus. It's a devotional, uh, 365 days for you to be able to spend time ingesting this word that you might become so familiar with it that like, like Zechariah, you can sing them with God. So I would recommend that. If you want to know more about the uh, Old Testament and how it connects to the new, 
If you want to gain greater familiarity with the the story that I told through those emojis, I've got two resources. God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts uh, is helpful, uh, as well as Graham Goldworthy's uh, Gospel and Kingdom. If in 2020 you're looking to start uh, a process that will allow you to read through the scriptures in a year, uh, here are three resources. I posted links on my Facebook so that um, if you didn't get a handout, they are listed on the back or uh, it's tough to read with links and such. Uh, they're available. The last one, the third one that's on there, the Bible recap, that one's geared more towards ladies. I'm not familiar with that one, uh, but I can recommend the Gospel Coalition one uh, as well as the Bible Project one. These are great ways, and two of them are actually ways that you can partner with other people doing it at the same time uh, to remain accountable, to be able to fill your soul with the kinds of truths that would cause your heart to sing. Let me pray for us. Father, you do give us reason to sing because you have done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending your son in the likeness of flesh and for sin. You have condemned sin in the flesh. Lord, you have defeated the only enemy that could not be defeated. Lord, you have made promises to us in the past and we have seen your faithfulness and seen your mercy. God, I pray that you would guard our hearts from putting our hope in any politician or any program, any kind of therapy, any kind of drug. Lord, your son is the only savior to our deepest issue. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause that truth uh, to stir in us joy and peace and hope. God, I don't want to move out into the world um, feeling the darkness and not having the hope of the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, giving our feet a place to stand. And so I pray, Lord, you'd continue to reveal this light to us, that the darkness might not overcome it, that it would renew our minds, transform our hearts, so that as a body of believers, we might be your people, enjoying your rule and blessing, serving you, not out of duty or fear, but happily in delight because we love you. Lord, lead us in paths of holiness and righteousness because of the salvation you've given to us in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you'd let our light shine brightly among our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, that the light would radiate out of Keystone and into our community and, Lord, even to the ends of the earth. That you would overcome the darkness with this song of light through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you do that in Jesus' name?